Daniels here is here. There he is in the back, getting another much-deserved rest. So uh, he asked me if I'd fill the pulpit today, and I'm delighted to do so. I'm glad to see all of you here, and uh, just thankful to be here myself and to have the opportunity to share the word. So today we are going to conclude a, a brief series of messages that we started on Easter Sunday pertaining to the resurrection. And of course, on Easter Sunday, Pastor Daniel preached a message about the life-altering power of the resurrection, how we go from death to life, from being one way to being another. Remember the board up here, which was full of sticky notes that people expressed how on which people express how God had changed their lives. Last week, Will shared from John chapter 20 uh, a message about the fear and doubt that existed in the hearts of the disciples following the crucifixion of Jesus before he appeared to them resurrected and glorified out of the grave. There are numerous resurrection stories in the Gospels at the end of, the, of each of the Gospels. And uh, today I want to go to yet another one, back to John chapter 21, following the message from John 20 last week. We'll be looking at chapter 21. We'll also be looking at some other scriptures. So if you want to turn to it, you can do that. Rather than reading the entire passage that I'll be touching on, won't be the entire chapter, but... I'm going to read it in piecemeal as we go along through the message. So John chapter 21. And as you're turning to that, you may remember last week that John chapter 20 ended with verses 30 and 31, which said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book, in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That sounds like a good conclusion to the book, but we see that there's more. We see that there is another chapter, if you will, chapter 21. And we find in this chapter yet another appearance of Jesus to his disciples. It says in the 14th verse, John tells us this is the third time that he appeared to them. Now, this appearance of the, of the Messiah to the disciples is a little different than the others, in that those previous appearances were to confirm the reality of the resurrection. If you read through them, all of them confirm the reality of the resurrection. That had already been done. So now this appearance of Jesus to his disciples has a different purpose. So let's look, beginning in verse 1 and verse 2, reading from the ESV. After this, the events of chapter 20, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So the first thing we see in this chapter is that seven of Jesus' disciples are gathered together here. Five of them are named, two of them are not named. 
They're gathered by the Sea of Tiberias, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And they are there at a place where so much had transpired over the three years that they were with Jesus. There at the Sea of Galilee, around Galilee, so much ministry had happened. And Jesus has directed the disciples through Mary, if you remember that passage, when Jesus appeared in his resurrected state to Mary, he said, go and tell my brothers, my disciples, to go before me into Galilee, and I will meet them there. So this is where we are. We don't have an exact time frame as to what, how much time had passed between the last event, the last appearance of Jesus in chapter 20, and what happens in chapter 21. There's not an exact time frame here. It may have been, probably was, just days before his ascension. We know from the book of Acts, chapter 1, that Jesus walked the earth for 40 days after he was resurrected from the grave, before he ascended back to the Father. So it's possible that three or four weeks had transpired, the disciples had made their way back to the Sea of Galilee and to that region to wait for Jesus. They're waiting. Waiting is not always an easy thing to do, is it? Is it fair to say that most of us have trouble waiting? just in day-to-day life. Like if you're sitting at a major intersection where the traffic light is long and you're trying to make a left-hand turn and there are six cars in front of you and they get through when the light changes green and then you're stopped there at that intersection because it turns red again. And then an emergency vehicle comes by this way and just as the light is ready to turn green so that you can go, he makes the light stay green that way, and you have to sit through it another cycle. That may or may not have happened to me yesterday. (laughs) And I may or may not have been chastised by my wife for being impatient (laughs) as she sat in the passenger seat. True confessions. But waiting's difficult. In the scriptures, uh, we see incidences where those who were called by God had to wait. Abraham, classic example of failing to wait on the Lord the way he was told to. He was promised a son through his wife, Sarah, and he waited, and it didn't happen. And at the urging of his wife, Sarah, he then took his, her handmaid, Hagar, and Ishmael was conceived, And the result of that is still having repercussions today between the son of the promise and Ishmael, Isaac and Ishmael, and the peoples descended from them. He didn't wait. King Saul, another example. He was told by Samuel, the prophet, after he was anointed as the first king of Israel to go to Gilgal, and he would meet him there and offer sacrifices to wait for him. Saul was battling the Philistines. The people were getting antsy, and he decided to take upon himself the responsibility to offer those sacrifices, and he got in trouble. He actually lost the kingdom ultimately because of that. So the disciples are in a situation where they're waiting. And there are those who would believe, or or do believe, that 
What happens next in verse 3 of chapter 21? Simon Peter says to them, to the other disciples, I'm going fishing. And the others say, we'll go with you. So there are those who believe that Simon Peter was acting in a way that Saul and Abraham acted in that they, he was not waiting the way he should have for Jesus to come because he was returning to his profession, that he was ready to abandon everything that he'd been called to, perhaps. At the very least, it was a crisis of faith. It was a, a, a failure of faith. That's one way of thinking about it. I happen to disagree with that. I don't believe that that is the case. Disappointment can lead to despair. It can lead to destruction sometimes. And I'm sure that there was some disappointment being felt by Peter and maybe the other disciples. We know Peter from reading the Gospels, the impetuous, you know, person who's probably had a long, hard time waiting at traffic lights as well. But I don't think that's the case here. I think that all of this was designed by God. Everything that happens in chapter 21 is by God's design. I believe also that what Peter did was commendable and necessary, and that it possibly, possibly may have not been the first time that he went fishing after the resurrection. The disciples, remember, <clears throat> had been with Jesus for three years, and they had benefited from those who were supporting the ministry of Jesus as they traveled with him. So they probably didn't do a lot of fishing during that time. That was their means of support. But now Jesus was crucified, resurrected, weeks have passed. They probably no longer had the benefit of that support. And so they were going to launch their boats out into the Sea of Galilee to try to get a catch to support themselves. I think that's very possible. I think that's what's happening here. I don't think that this was a bad thing. So they're trying to get a catch to sell at the market to support themselves. So I think Peter is a good example here of active waiting. Active waiting. We're called as followers of Jesus to occupy until he comes. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells a parable in which that is communicated, that we're to occupy until he comes again. We're waiting for Jesus as well to come again a second time to return to the earth, to set up his kingdom again. But we're to occupy. We're to be about the business of the kingdom. But not only that, we're to be about the daily routines that are responsibilities of life. We're called to do things we need to do and to do them as unto the Lord. Practical, common sense actions, doing the mundane things of life, going to work, changing diapers, all those things as unto the Lord, they're not unspiritual, faithless acts. They're part of who we are as people and as believers, and God calls us to do them. We do those things while we keep our eyes heavenward, our faith and trust in him, believing that he is coming again, and serving and occupying until he comes with both the work of the kingdom and ministry outside of our families, but also those, re those daily responsibilities. I think that's what Jesus, or that's, that's what Peter is doing here. That's what the disciples are doing. 
It's not a bad example. So the second part of that third verse in chapter 21, they launch out into the Sea of Galilee. They're fishing all night. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So they're out there trying to get a catch to sell, to satisfy their hunger, but they fish all night and they catch nothing. This, I'm sure, was certainly an exception and not the rule. These were seasoned fishermen. They know where, knew where to fish. They knew how to fish, but they caught nothing that night. And although it was an exception and not the rule, it wasn't the first time that it happened to Peter. As a matter of fact, three years before, early on in his relationship with Jesus, before he's actually called to be his disciple, right before that time, something very similar happened. Luke chapter 5 tells us that as Jesus was ministering on one occasion, the crowd was pressing into him. He's there at the Sea of Galilee. He gets into a boat that happens to belong to Peter, and he begins teaching from the boat because the crowd is pushing him off the shore, basically. And after he's finished teaching, he says to Simon Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. So this wasn't the first time that this had happened to Peter. He had experience with it. And what happens here in chapter 21 of John is strikingly similar to that event. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So dawn is breaking, the sun is rising over the Sea of Galilee, and just before they set out for land, tired and defeated because they've caught nothing, the disciples hear a voice from the shore. About a hundred yards away, it tells us later in this chapter. That's quite a distance, the length of a football field. It's early morning. The bright sun isn't shining yet. It's sort of twilight-ish, or the morning, or pre-sunrise kind of sky. Maybe it's misting. So whoever it is that's calling from the shore, they wouldn't recognize. But it's Jesus. They just don't know it. And he calls out to them, Children, do you have any fish? Have you caught anything, fellows? And probably in unison, in a weary and tired voices, they reply to him, No, no. No luck today, tonight. When Jesus asks this question, it's like so many other times in the scriptures where he poses a question to someone. It's not so much, or not at all, really, that Jesus is seeking to find an answer. He knows the answer already. When Jesus asks a question, it's for the benefit of those who are hearing the question. It's for their benefit. It's meant to evoke some thought and contemplation about why he's asking that question. Do you want to get well? He asked the invalid man at the pool of Bethesda. 
He wanted to know if that man really wanted to get well or if his affliction had become such a crutch that it became a barrier to another life that he was actually hanging on to that affliction. It became so familiar to him. Do you want to get well? Who touched me, Jesus asked. When a woman with a lifelong affliction in a crowd that was headed toward the house of Jairus, a synagogue leader where Jesus was going to uh, raise his son uh, or daughter, that this woman, in her desperation, reached out and touched the hem of his garment, saying, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And Jesus said, who touched me? And his disciples said, Lord, how do Look at this crowd. How could we tell who touched you? He knew who touched him. He was trying to draw that woman out to give testimony to the goodness and faithfulness of God having healed her, and he did that. Children, do you have any fish? He knew they hadn't. He knew they toiled all night in the darkness only to come up empty. Then he said to them, cast your net on the other side. Cast your net on the other side. He told Peter three years before at that other time at the Sea of Galilee, go out deeper and cast your nets. And three years before, Peter went out deeper and he cast his net and they hauled in a huge catch of fish. At this point, you have to believe that Peter and John and some of the others who may have been there three years before are beginning to think there's something very similar about this. This reminds me of something that happened a while back. They began to think about that incident three years before. And lo and behold, just as happened three years before, they bring in a huge catch of fish. A miraculous, abundant catch. They cast their net, and now, verse 6 tells us, they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Nothing that these men could do with all their skill as fishermen could bring in a catch. Did that mean they were in rebellion? Did that mean that they shouldn't have been out there fishing? I've already shared my conviction about that. I don't think that's so. I think that Jesus planned it. I think that he was on that shore maybe all night after they had set sail watching. And if he wasn't on the shore, wherever he was, he knew what was going on because he's Jesus, right? He saw them laboring throughout the night, toiling in the darkness. Sometimes our labor for the Lord and our labor in the Lord seems to produce little fruit or sometimes nothing, but rest assured that as we are faithfully serving, He is still working. And His call to us is to persevere. His call to us is persevere. To keep on doing the things we know we should do. To seek his face, to share his truth, to love our neighbor, to remember the poor, to give to those who ask, 
to forgive those who have hurt us, and on and on and on he calls us to be faithful in all those things and other things, even when we don't see the fruit of it, because he's still working in us and through us. And in those times of toiling in the darkness in the sea of life, he has not forgotten us. He sees us. Psalm 30 says he hasn't forsaken us. Psalm 30 says that his favor lasts for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry or endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. He calls us to come to him weary and heavy laden, and he will give us rest. And then those times come when he shows himself and blesses and fills our nets. One commentator said much the same thing in a little different way. You cannot expect, he said, that your nets will always be full. Failure and disappointment mingle in the most successful lives. Christian work has often to be done with no results at all apparent to the doer. But be sure of this, that they who learn and practice the homely, wholesome virtues of persistent adherence to the task that God sets them will catch some gleams of a presence most real and most blessed, and before they die they will know that their labor has not been in vain in the Lord. They that sow in tears shall reap with joy. So when Jesus calls out a question from the shore to those disciples, he's not so much inquiring of them because he already knows the answer. He's instructing them. When he speaks to our hearts in our life circumstances, he's doing the same. The resurrected Christ is there for us as well, just as he was for those disciples. Verses 7 and 8. They haul in a huge quantity of fish. And that disciple, it says, whom Jesus loved, I love the way John refers to himself because that's who it's speaking of. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple who Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! Now they're still a hundred yards offshore. Maybe there's a little bit more light. Maybe the mist is lifted. But I think that rather than recognizing him by sight, John knew because of what had happened. That's got to be Jesus. It's got to be Jesus. Who else could make this happen? It's got to be Jesus. He was the one who, when Mary came and said, the Lord is risen, he and Peter ran to the tomb, and he outran Peter, and he went into that tomb, and he saw what was going, that the body wasn't there, and that the garments were, were there and folded up, and he believed, it said. And Peter was still a little slower behind him, come, came and looked, and he saw, but he didn't quite have the same faith that John did. Here, Peter, or John says, that's got to be Jesus. This time, Peter said, and you must be right, and he puts on this garment. Why he put a garment on to swim in the, to the shore is beyond me. I don't understand that. But he puts on this garment, and he jumps in the lake, and he swims to shore. He swims to shore because Jesus is waiting there. 
There was discernment on the part of John and faith exercise by Peter. So the boat comes into shore with the other disciples and Peter himself, it says, hauls in that entire net full of 153 fish. There's a lot of speculation about why John wrote that number specifically. I'm not even going to get into that. A lot of different ideas. One was that one of the church fathers said that 153 was the exact number of species of fish at that time. I don't know. You can research that. I think John just gave a number. He counted them. One, two, three, four, five. There's 153 fish here. And there on the shore, Jesus already has a charcoal fire going. And he apparently caught a few fish himself. Or had him just jump out of the lake and onto the charcoal fire. I don't know how he did it. It doesn't say. But he has a fire going and fish on that charcoal fire and some bread. And he wants to share another meal with his brothers before he ascends back to the Father. He wants to share another meal with them. And he asks them, bring some of the fish that you caught. It says in verse 10. Bring some of the fish that you caught. He was the one by whose hand they were able to catch that fish, but it didn't negate their labor, their part in it. This is a picture of how God uses his servants. He uses us. He uses us as co-laborers in the work of his kingdom. He's sovereign and he can accomplish anything he wants, any way that he wants, but he chooses to use us as believers as his hands and his feet extended to others. And so they share this meal together. And there was another meal that weeks before Jesus had shared with his disciples. It was a meal that had much more significance than this meal. It was the Passover meal that he shared on the night that he was betrayed. And he gave new and deeper meaning to that meal as he instituted the Lord's Supper. Pastor Bill Oakley is going to come in a few minutes and lead us in communion as I bring this message to a close. And we're going to share in that Lord's table together. The second half of this chapter, there is much that can be said and has been said and preached and taught about Jesus' encounter with Peter in these last verses. But that's another whole sermon. I want to only briefly summarize it. Jesus asks of Peter three times. First he says, Simon Peter, do you lo- son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? Again, a question. Who was he talking about? Was he talking about the fish, the fishing career that he had? Was he talking about the other disciples? Do you love me more than these do? Because remember, Peter had confessed his allegiance to Jesus before he was betrayed. He said, I'll follow you. I'll go to jail for you. I'll die for you. 
But then we know what happened. Three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Weeks before, three times, Peter denied him. You were with Jesus, weren't you? I don't know the man. I saw you. You're one of the Galileans. I don't know him. Yes, you were with Jesus. I don't know the man. Three times Peter denied him. Three times Jesus asks for an affirmation of his love for him. But this encounter in the last part of this chapter is not the first encounter that Jesus has with Peter after his resurrection. There is, in fact, another resurrection story that is mentioned twice in Scripture about which we have no recorded detail whatsoever. Luke chapter 24 and verse 34, you don't have to turn to it, so we'll read it briefly. Of course, Luke 24 is the account of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who encountered Jesus. And after they finally recognize who he is, they run back to the 11 remaining disciples to tell them, and they're greeted with this. Those who are with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. So the eleven, Simon and Peter included among them, tell these other two disciples that the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that the Lord appeared to Cephas, Simon Peter, then to the twelve. So there's an encounter that Jesus had with Peter one-on-one that the Scripture tells us nothing about. What a meeting that must have been. We don't know what happened, but we can only conclude that the weight of guilt and shame and regret that had burdened Peter for weeks had burdened his heart because of his denial of Jesus, was lifted away by the grace-filled words of the Savior. Ultimately, Peter took his place, God-given place, as a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. That grace and forgiveness is ever available to us as we call upon the name of Jesus. That grace and forgiveness is available today. If you have by your words, your deeds, your actions denied the Lord in some way, you can know for sure that his amazing grace is yours and forgiveness is yours through confession and repentance. The blood of Jesus that was shed was sufficient to achieve that forgiveness. That grace and forgiveness is available today. So as we prepare to receive the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper, if you're a believer, please examine yourself before receiving the bread and the cup and avail yourself of that grace. Secondly, 
If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've not trusted in him as Savior and the Lord of your life, please refrain from taking the bread and the cup. That's an instruction that the Bible gives us. But at the same time, know that Jesus is present in our gathering here today. He's present. If you're watching on Facebook Live, he's present in your living room or bedroom or wherever you're watching. He's present. His grace is here. His forgiveness is available. So if you're ready, he's ready to receive you into his church. Forgiving you of your sin and making you a part of his family. If that's you, talk to one of us after the service. Contact us if you're watching online. Resurrection stories are still being written today. Still being written today. Jesus is still in the business of encountering people. The risen Savior is appearing, manifesting himself to people every day, bringing them to faith in him, bringing them to an understanding that he's with them, even as they toil in the darkness, that he's with them. He's still changing lives, still saving souls from sin and death and hell. Praise his name. I'm going to ask Pastor Bill Oakley to come and lead us in communion as I close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the resurrection stories that we see throughout the Gospels of these disciples who went from being confused and fearful and doubtful from not understanding to eventually becoming those who would give their very lives for you as they proclaimed your word. So Lord, as we go from uh, day to day in this life, Lord, may we never forget that you are watching us from the shore, so to speak, that you see our toil and our labor, you know our hurts, our wounds, our successes and our failures, that you're with us in all of that, Lord. That your heart is to bless us with a sense of your presence and abiding faith that you'll never forsake us or leave us. And we thank you for that. We praise you, Lord. And ask that you prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the cup this morning as Bill shares with us and leads us in that. Amen.